Well, last week we had our missions week, and, um, and Rick Shoup shared with us, um, coming from Jordan. And then on Wednesday, a lot of you I, th- I saw there on Wednesday, so that was cool. We had um, the, I always mess up the pronunciation, Craigness's? Uh, I don't know. We had, a, we, had, we had a family from Brazil that shared with us, and that was a really nice time with really good food. And today, Bill Tell, who's with Navigators, is going to uh, give us a message. So I've been told he's been with the church for quite a while. I've only been here for two and a half years, so you probably know him better than I do. But um, give him a hand as he shares God's word with us this morning. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Oh. Wow. What a privilege to be with you all. We've been part of the uh, missionary family of First Baptist here since the mid-70s. That's the 1970s, not the 18s, okay? Um, So uh, we first got associated with the church here when Jay Pankratz was a senior pastor. Anybody remember Jay? Okay. And he and I became good friends, and we were ministering over at the University of Illinois at the time. And uh, he would open the church up for us for one-day conferences on Saturday. And we'd bring two, three hundred college kids over for the Saturday. And we had them hanging from the rafters in here. And Jay wouldn't charge us anything to use the church. So thank you. And then, uh, let's see, we spent nine years in Urbana. And then we moved over here to Peoria for seven years. And I directed the collegiate ministries in the state. And I had some ministry at Bradley University. And then we moved to the left coast, the west coast, um, out to uh, California. We spent six years out there, and then moved back to Colorado Springs about 20 years ago, actually, which is the Navigator headquarters. And I've done a little bit of everything since then, became deputy U.S. director, led the collegiate work in the U.S., the military work, uh, became chief of staff, which is really just chief of stuff. And uh, now I have my dream job. I get to teach our young leaders and the navigators how to read the New Testament through the lens of the gospel. So that's actually good news. Because most young people today and and young staff do not believe the New Testament contains very much good news. There's a lot of standards in here that seem impossible and that discourage them. So that's us. Um, By the way, well, let's see. I came to Christ as a freshman in college right after the end of the Civil War. And um, then, then went to work for Dow Chemicals, analytical chemist. Uh, left there, went to Raspberry Cemetery, Asbury Seminary. Um, and then we joined the staff of the NAVs in 1972 and went to Urbana before we came here. And by the way, I want to thank a lot of you. I know a lot of you prayed for us last summer as our house was in the middle of the Black Forest forest fire. And... Um, we were evacuated for 10 days, and while we were evacuated, we watched the house across the street from us burning on CNN, and we could see our driveway in the bottom of the screen, and so we just assumed our house was gone, and uh, when we went back in 10 days later, the house was standing, everything's black around it, and it burned right up to our foundation, but the house stood, and the house across the street's gone, our neighbor's house is gone. And then beyond that, the next 500 houses are gone. And so literally our house was right on the line. And uh, so thank you for praying for us. Well, this is your missions emphasis. And last week you heard about missions in Jordan and it sounds like Brazil. 
And uh, this morning, I want to talk about missions, not in the context of another country, but in the context of another generation, the next generation. Sue and I have spent about 40 years ministering to college students, so that's our world. That's our mission field. And when you come to the scriptures, it always presents missions with two different concepts. The first concept is the concept of all the nations. The promise to Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. Okay? And then in Psalm 96, the, psalm, the psalmist talks about declaring his glory among the nations. Okay? And then, of course, you have the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations. But as you look through the scriptures, there's a more fundamental concept of missions than the nations. And that's the concept of generations. That the gospel goes from generation to generation to generation in whatever nation it goes to. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, is generations, okay? In Psalm 71, David said, even, even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I declare thy word to the next generation. Okay? And then 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, of course, you have Paul says to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so in the one verse, you have four generations. You have Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. And that's how the gospel goes. Psalm 78. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will tell the next generation. So what we have heard and experienced, what we heard from the previous generation, and we have now personally experienced, we will tell the next generation. And that brings us to our topic for this morning, is how do we gain a hearing with the next generation so the gospel will flow? Because the research is in. The gospel is not flowing, and the next generation is not listening. And so how do we gain a hearing? Uh, two of the largest denominations in the U.S. did extensive research, professional research, and they discovered that 80, 60 to 80 percent of their young people within 12 months of graduating from high school leave the church. 60 to 80 percent leave the church. Uh, Lifeway, the research and publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, did an extensive, extensive survey and research. And it was even published in USA Today. And they discovered that of the 60 to 80 percent that were leaving the Southern Baptist churches, 70 percent of them were not coming back. See, a lot of times we say, oh, well, they'll come back. As soon as they get married and have kids, they'll come back. And they discovered it's not true. They are not coming back. So, in essence, in some ways, we're losing the next generation. We're losing the future of the church. We're losing the advance of the gospel into the nations. And it could very well be that here at First Baptist, oh, first service I called you First Presbyterian. What an insult. Um, 
but they were all sitting in the back like Presbyterians. So it just, but it could be that here at First Baptist, you know, together we are losing the next generation. And so the question is, is how do we as a First Baptist family gain a hearing with the next generation of young people? And that's what we want to talk about. Now, there's four possible responses to this loss of youth, the loss of the next generation, and there are four responses, and all of them are wrong. They're all ineffective, okay? And I just want to run through them real quickly here. One response would be to try to protect our young people from all the sin and the crud and the junk that's out there in the world and try to eliminate that stuff out there, okay? Eliminate the temptation. But you know what? It doesn't work. And it won't work. See, the next generation's susceptibility to sin does not lie in the temptation. The temptation is simply a trigger that triggers something on the inside that makes them want to do that. So resolving the issue of temptation never resolves the issue. Matter of fact... Let me put it another way. Resistance to temptation never solves the problem. Now, should you resist? Absolutely. Don't hear me say it otherwise. We resist temptation. But here's the truth. The longer you resist, the greater the pleasure in finally acting out. So long-term resistance is not the solution. You didn't pay for that. That was extra. A second possible response to this loss of youth and the, the loss of the next generation, it doesn't work, but it's, it's creating an environment with more standards and more expectations and more rules and more codes of conduct, okay? more laws, um, performance expectations. And, and once in a while... I'll come across a church that is really, really, really serious about this, or a Christian school that's really serious about having rules and laws and we're going to live up to them, and they institute a policy of zero tolerance. Okay? Zero tolerance is diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. They cannot exist together. Because, see, zero tolerance says that if I expose my sin or I share with you what I'm struggling with, I'm going to get kicked out. But I desperately want to belong. I desperately want to be a part. I want the relationships. And so this environment of zero tolerance, instead of allowing me to bring my sin into the open and into the light, It causes me to hide it. And sin loves what? Darkness. And in that darkness, sin grows. And so environments, legalistic, law-based, performance, zero-tolerance environments have more sin than any other place. It's just well hidden. Because you know if you bring it out so you can get help, you're kicked out. That makes sense? 
Now let me add, when somebody brings their sin into the light, when they self-reveal that, hey, I am struggling with pornography, I'm struggling with my girlfriend, I, you know, I'm having eating problems, or I, man, I, I am just so angry. Whatever it is, when somebody self-reveals, okay, the consequences for bringing their sin into the light always has to be less than if they were caught. Because if they're the same, what will they do? If the consequences are the same, what will the person do? They'll keep hiding. Okay, okay a third ineffective response could be more Bible, more theology, better worldview. Doesn't work. Okay? Knowledge of the truth. Never transform somebody. Satan knows the truth. Okay? Let me put it this way. Knowledge of God does not transform the next generation. What you have to do is learn to trust God. And when you trust God, you will experience God. And you know what happens when you experience God? You're transformed. You mature. So more knowledge is not the solution, but it seduces us. Even though the knowledge we have isn't transforming us, we still want more. And of course, of course the fourth response could be more money, more youth workers, more facilities, and stuff like that. But to me, all of these miss the heart and the core of why the next generation is not listening and why they're walking away and why they're not maturing. And I believe at the heart and core of the problem is this, is we have immersed the next generation in a culture of mistrust. They can't trust anybody. Everybody they know, just give them a little time and the truth comes out. They didn't win seven yellow jerseys legally. They used drugs. Okay? It's just a matter of time. And so you can't trust anybody with who you are. You can't tell anybody the truth about yourself. So focusing on removing temptation is not going to solve the problem. Uh, rules, laws, higher standards doesn't solve the problem. Knowledge doesn't solve the problem. If our young people and the next generation are going to mature in their faith, what we have to do is we have to create a culture. We have to create an environment, whether it's here at the church, in your family, your school, whatever. We have to create an environment that's characterized by two things. The grace of God and trust. And this morning I want to talk about the second one. How do you create an environment of trust so that the gospel message can be received and flow from one generation to the next? Imparting the ability to trust 
is the greatest gift that you can give the next generation. If people cannot trust, they will always remain immature in their faith. They will never be loved. Okay? And they will never obey. Trust is the greatest gift that you can give young people. Now, how does First Baptist develop an environment of trust? How do you do it in your family? To answer that, what I'd like to do is just go through a process with you. I want you all to pretend that you are the next generation, okay? You're young. You feel good. Your bones don't ache when you get out of bed, okay? You feel like, what's your name? Ben, okay? I want you, you're like Ben, you know? You're young. You're athletic. You're good-looking, okay? Smart. What else? Is that good enough? Okay. So, so I'm, I'm the old generation. You're Ben, right? Is that what? Ben. See, I can't even remember that long. Ben. Okay? And I want to take you through a process of how do we get Ben and how do I get you to listen and trust me? Okay? How do you develop an environment of trust? Well, if you are going to trust me, it starts with my integrity. Now, integrity is not sinlessness, it's not perfection, it's not holiness. Integrity simply means I tell you the truth about me. If I'm struggling with pornography, I tell you. If I'm struggling with my girlfriend, I tell you. If I'm whatever, I tell you the truth. That's what integrity is. I tell you who I am, who I'm not, what I can do, what I can't do. I'm authentic with you. That is integrity. Okay? See, it's not telling you, I don't struggle with these things. And then when I'm not looking, you catch me. If that happens, I know I can't trust you. If you say you're one thing and I see something else, I will never trust you. Practicing integrity is what the Bible calls humility. Humility is telling other people in God the truth about what you're really like. Okay? Over in Luke 18, there's a great parable. Jesus, Jesus talks about these two guys that walk into a bar, I mean the temple. Um, one, a, one a Pharisee, and one a tax collector. And they both pray. And remember, remember how the Pharisee prays? What's the Pharisee pray? What's that? Yeah. Oh, thank you for not making me like other people and like this tax collector. And then he says, gee whiz, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Um, but then the tax collector prays. And what does he pray? 
Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says to God, I'm a wretch. I'm a mess. I'm screwed up. Have mercy on me. And then at the end of the parable, like most parables, Jesus gives the meaning. And in the last part of the parable, Jesus points at the tax collector and he says, there's a humble man. And you think, what was it that the tax collector just did that made Jesus call him humble? What did he do? Told the truth. I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. Okay? Humility is telling others and God the truth about yourself. And so your trust of me will always be dependent upon my humility and my integrity. And a young person's trust of you will always be dependent upon your integrity, never your role. Even your role as a parent. Roles do not elicit trust. Okay. Trust is earned by living a life of humility with the next generation. You tell them the truth. Okay. So my integrity, I live a life of integrity and humility, not necessarily for my sake, but for your sake, so that you can trust me. Okay. Now, when you trust me, here's the next step in the process. When you trust me for the first time, you can receive my love. If you don't trust me, it doesn't matter how much love I have for you, you will not receive it because you're like this. I don't trust you. And so the principle is this. The degree to which you trust me will be the degree to which I can love you. And we have a next generation that is living in a world where they feel they can't trust anybody. And we have an unloved generation coming up. But you can't live without love, and so you look for a substitute. And the only substitute they're finding is pleasure. That's a cheap substitute for love. And love is powerful. Love is so powerful. You know what? Love can handle sin. First Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. Love can deal with sin and break its power. See, my generation was taught something so that we could teach something. The next generation wants to receive something so they can become something. And what they want to receive from you is your love because you're trustworthy. So I live a life of integrity. 
and you trust me, and now you can receive my love. And the next step in the process is, you know what happens? You begin to practice humility with me. You start to tell me the truth about you. I was out for lunch some time ago with one of my friends. And uh, we were eating our healthy salads instead of our, where we wanted to go. And um, I'm chewing a little bit, and I tell Randy, boy, Randy, you wouldn't believe the fight I had with Sue last week. Sue got so mad at me, she wouldn't talk to me. She turned her back to me. We were in bed. She turned her back to me and turned to the wall. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. You know, and I'm telling about this fight we had. Well, my turn to eat. I got to catch up eating, and so I'm quiet, and I'm sitting there eating a little bit, you know, and there's this silence. And all of a sudden, Randy goes, Bill, you wouldn't believe the fight we had just the other night. And he tells me about the fight he had with his wife. But where did it start? Where did his willingness to be humble and tell the truth start? Started with me, telling the truth. See? Fourteen years ago or so, I, I went through, I had a year's sick leave from the Navigators and uh, to deal with severe burnout and very deep, dark depression. And it's in my genes, and I, I was kind of messed up. And I still have to be on, on medication for it. Um, a lot of my family had to be locked up. And, um, you know, I'll tell people this. And when I'm done, somebody always comes up after everybody's gone, and they look this way, and they look this way to make sure nobody's listening. And they say, are you still on antidepressants? And I say, Yes. And they go, I am too. Okay. But until I came into the light, they had never shared it with anybody. Okay. And so until I practice humility as a parent, your kids will never do it. Okay. It starts with you. Okay, we got to move on here. Lunch is coming. We've got to keep our priorities straight. <laughs> and as you practice humility, what does God promise you? I heard it. Grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He will restore you. He will lift you up. He will heal you. He will exalt you. Okay? He will mature you. Well, as you practice humility with me and you tell me the truth about you, it enables you to take another step in the trust process. And the next step in the trust process is learning to practice vulnerability. Okay? And vulnerability is very different than transparency. In transparency, I choose what I'm going to share with you. And I can leave anything out, but I'm in control. 
And so transparency can be very manipulative. I tell you what I want to. Okay? And you never get to do anything about it. But in vulnerability, you make four life-changing choices. Okay? And I just want to run through them real quickly. The first choice is you choose to reveal yourself to me, like in transparency, but you reveal everything. See, all of us, young person, adult, grandparent, all of us need one person in our life that knows everything about us. Absolutely everything. Because if you don't have that person, you're living in hiddenness, and you're in darkness, and whatever those issues are that you have never shared are still unresolved. Okay? Nothing is resolved in hiddenness. And so you choose to reveal yourself to me. And then secondly, you choose to give me access to your life. You give me permission to ask you anything. I was on the national leadership team of the Navigators for 14 years, and we met monthly for a couple of days. And usually we would take an hour, two hours, three hours, and we'd do this little exercise. We'd break up in groups of two or three, and the exercise with your partners was this. Ask me anything. You can ask me anything. Okay. And so we're given access to each other. Um, you give me permission to open any closet, to turn over any rock. I can ask you any question I want, and you will be truthful with me. Okay? Because you can trust me. You've learned to trust me, and so you can tell me the truth. See, my role as a parent, as a teacher, as a pastor, will never give me access to you as a person. Only my humility and my integrity and your ability to trust me will give access to your person. Do you ever feel like you're talking to a brick wall? See, that person is not giving you access because they don't trust you. Third decision when you're practicing vulnerability is this. You choose to let me teach you. See, it does not matter how much truth I have or how much truth I verbalize, or how well I know this book and we teach it around the kitchen table for devotions, it doesn't matter how much truth I have and can verbalize to you, if you don't trust me, you will not receive it. And the advance of the gospel stops right there because you don't trust me. I got an illustration here, but we want to get to lunch. Fourth decision, you choose to reveal yourself to me, you choose to give me access to your life, you choose to let me teach you, and then fourthly, you choose to let me influence you. You know, you say, hey, I, I disobeyed my parents, they're angry at me, I slammed the door, I cussed them out, and at best, our relationship is strained. Now you've told me the truth, and now you've given me access. And so, hey, let's talk about this. And I, I, I prod you with some questions, and you tell me the truth. 
but you've also given me permission to teach you. And so we can go into the scriptures and talk about the difference between independence and freedom. And, and what does it look like to live in freedom as a teenager or as a young, young person versus being independent? See, the prodigal son got independence and freedom mixed up. And what would it look like to, to grow in freedom in your family and with your parents? And then I might ask, by the way, have you asked forgiveness of your parents? No. And again, because he's given me permission to teach, I, we, we can look at that for just a second. And I can say, and I'll use Ben again here, okay? Ben, you need to go ask forgiveness of your folks. Here's folks. No? Where are your folks? Way back there. Okay. Um, have you asked forgiveness? And he says, no. And I say, Ben, you need to do that. And because he has chosen to come under my influence, you know what he does? He goes and he does it. Because he trusts me. And you know what that's called? When we trust another person and we do what they say, or we trust God and we do what he says, you know what that's called? Obedience. Obedience is always the evidence of trust. Now let me say something heretical to you here. And I hope you don't stop our financial support. God is not pleased by your obedience. God is not pleased by your obedience. You know Hebrews 11:6 and without faith. Okay, in Greek that's the word pistos. I knew a little Greek once, but he moved. And um <laughs> And, and so you can translate that verse, without trust, it's impossible to please God. So what is it that pleases God? Your trust. And you know what the evidence of your trust is? It's your obedience. But what pleases him? It's trust, because trust is relational. And that's what he wants. He wants a relationship of trust with you. Okay? That is discipleship. See, discipleship is not taking people through a curriculum. It's not 12 books of that or 40 days of this, that, or the other thing. Discipleship is developing a relationship of trust with somebody so you can love them, so you can teach them, so you can guide them, and they come under your influence. That's discipleship. And so you can never disciple somebody you don't know. And now listen to this. You can never disciple somebody who does not trust you. You can never disciple somebody who does not trust you. And where does that trust start? Your humility, your integrity. Let me read to you a list of characteristics of the next generation who is growing up without trust. Without trust, the next generation will not experience love. Without trust, our young people can never practice humility. See, if you don't go first, they won't go. 
Without trust, they will not experience truth. They will only accumulate knowledge. Without trust, they will be deceived, living as their own expert. See, if I don't have somebody I trust that will speak truth into my life, I am always deceived. Without trust, they can never be guided into the fullness of God's purposes for their life. Without trust, they will grow in their competencies, their abilities, their wealth, their power, and their skills, but always at the expense of relationships. See, unloved people don't have relationships. So like this. Without trust, their competencies may grow, but their character remains immature. Without trust, their spirituality is performance and law-based based on what they do, not on who they are. Without trust, they may reach their potential, but they'll never reach their destiny. Without trust, they can never obey. They can only comply. And without trust, they are vulnerable to evil because they're in hiding. And whenever you're in hiding, there's never a more vulnerable spot. The greatest gift that we can give the next generation is the ability to trust us so that, they can re- so that we can love them. We can teach them truth. The gospel can flow from this generation to the next, okay? and they can mature. And so the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations. You know where it starts? It starts in my humility, and it starts in your humility of telling God and other people the truth about what you're really like so you can start the process of trust. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that we just don't have to know about you but we can trust you. And Father, in that trust, thank you that we can experience you and we find you trustworthy. And when we do, thank you for the transformation you create in our life. So Father, I pray for the families represented here, for the parents, for the church, that this would be an environment where we can be real. We can practice humility. We can share what we're struggling with. We can bring our sin into the open so the light can deal with it and so love can deal with it. Father, I pray that you would allow the flow of the gospel from generation to generation, to generation, to start with our humility and our integrity. And Father, this morning, if there's things I have said that are untrue, I pray they'd be like water on sand and we could never recapture it. But Father, this morning where there has been truth, 
would you help us to trust it? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, a parting thought real quick. Um, FBC, do you guys want to be a disciple-making church? Enthusiastically, yes. We want to be a disciple-making church. I, I, I've never really thought about that connection that you shared today as far as being a disciple-making people, uh, vulnerability, trust, and the transfer of, of, of the gospel and all those types of things. And so it kind of made me think of uh, one of my pet peeves I'll share with you just, just, just briefly. You guys heard the, the phrase, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I think that the church um, over the last few centuries may have done that with one aspect of our experiences. You see, during the, during the Reformation, there were a lot of abuses about 400 years ago in the church. Um, and false teachings that were that were given, and one of those false teachings was the concept that um, in order to confess your sins, you had to go to a, a, a specific individual, and as the priest as mediator. And we're like, well, that's not true, right? That's not true. I, I confess my sins before the Lord, and so we got rid of that practice of confession. But at the same time, James does tell us what: confess your sins one to another. And so in throwing out that practice, that false practice of confessing to a priest, we, we, we stopped confessing our sins to one another and being transparent and vulnerable to one another. And I never really caught the connection there, but it makes sense to me that in so doing, then we begin to lose our trustworthiness. We begin to lose our credibility. We begin to lose our ability to love. Um, so I appreciate Bill um, sharing that with us. And so, again, First Baptist, so we want to be a disciple-making church. Yes. yes. And so let's take some of this stuff to heart and say, I want to transfer the gospel to the next generation. If that means I have to be vulnerable, if that means practicing confession, I'm not talking about airing dirty laundry. I'm talking about finding somebody that you trust and just being real with them, being real when we talk to the, the Bens. I want to be like Ben. Amen. Well, maybe not. you don't have a you don't have a fan club, Ben. Sorry, <laughs> but that's all right. But does it, is, is that making sense? All right, I better stop, or I'll start doing another message, and we're done. And 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 Bill clearly wanted to prioritize lunch. <laughs> I think I I think I got that right, right? <laughs> all right. So thank you, Bill, for sharing that with us. And let me pray for you guys one more time, and then we'll go out, and we will be about the business of making disciples in our community. Amen. Jesus, just be with us. Help us. Help us to understand what this means. Help us to, to know what it means to be a confessing body, to be a loving body, to be a trustworthy body, to be a disciple-making body. These, the, the, the specifics might be far off to us in our minds, um, but help our desire to be there. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us and pave the way for us to be making disciples, to be bringing new life and converts in our community and to the ends of the earth. Help us to be about eternal things, even today as we go out for lunch. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go make disciples.